Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. For those that don't follow us on Twitter, we ran a poll recently to get people's opinions on our trialling some automatic advert insertions into the podcast, as this was something that our host had started providing as an option. Now, we've always tried to avoid advertising where we could, but it is getting increasingly difficult to meet the costs of everything that we do, and these are obviously a way for us to earn a little extra. Now, 89% of those responding were happy with this, so we're going to go ahead and try it out. Now, I hope you won't find it too distracting. Until we run the trial, we won't know for sure where the ads will appear and how many there'll be. Please bear with us. If it turns out to have a negative impact on the podcast, then we will disable the advertising again and hope that people are able to support us in other ways, such as our Patreon page. And there's also the donation button on our website. Before we begin the episode proper, here's a brief word from a fellow podcaster, Kate Shaw, who'd like you to know about her podcast, Strange Animals. I'll be back in half a minute. Strange Animals Podcast brings you weekly family-friendly episodes about the world's weirdest and most interesting animals, alive, extinct, or possibly imaginary. From the dire wolf to the Dover demon, subscribe and discover your new favorite animal on Strange Animals Podcast. The idea of the trickster is a strong archetype in mythology and folklore in different cultures around the world. Whether a deity, a human, or something more anthropomorphic, the trickster uses their intellect to create confusion, subvert rules, or simply to play tricks. Of course, the trickster is not just confined to mythology. Where folklore crosses into popular culture, we can still find the trickster looming large from older texts, such as Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, with Puck at the centre, and right through to Looney Tunes' Bugs Bunny. In his book, Tricking Power into Performing Acts of Love, Dr Shepard Siegel collects together many of these stories of the trouble caused by famous cultural tricksters, from the Native American coyote and the Zulu weasel, to that eponymous rabbit. Dr Siegel grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1960s and was first a rock and jazz musician before moving into education. He gained his doctorate from UC Berkeley in anthropology and special education whilst developing internship programmes for troubled youths. He's published extensively in the fields of education as well as two books on the trickster, the first being Disruptive Play in 2018. Dr Siegel met up with our literary correspondent Hilary Wilson to discuss the trickster and his work on the archetype. Yeah, hello. So we are here to talk to you today about uh, your book Tricking Power into Performing Arts of Love, as well as your previous book Disruptive Play. You know, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks very much, Hilary. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Yeah, so you've been writing about the trickster. Mm-hmm. You know, so what brought you to be interested in that archetype? 
Yeah, you know, it, I didn't come to uh, the 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 trickster archetype immediately. Um, I, I I I did. I was pretty young in the 1960s, but I was around and I was growing up then, and I was really fascinated by you know just kind of the utopian visions of the time that it was a time of great pain and suffering in terms of the war in Vietnam. But within that pain, there was also joyfulness and there was playfulness. And I was most attracted to that part of the anti-war movement that made fun of power, that mocked power, that, you know, I mean, the event I love most talking about is how the uh, Abby Hoffman and a bunch of demonstrators levitated the uh, Pentagon. Um, some say 30 feet off the ground, some say 300 Um Accurate records are difficult to find, but they, you know, performed an exorcism. And, um, and, 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 and so what, what resonated for me was not the trickster per se, but playfulness. And I thought, and, and so I became very enamored of this idea of grownups who have retained the ability to be playful as they were when children. And I was convinced that part of making the world a better place, which is a, you know, kind of a mission statement so many people share now. So many people will talk about themselves, say, I'm just trying to make the world a better place. And for me, that meant a, a, a world where where you don't have to outgrow playfulness. You And I'm not talking about immaturity. I'm mm-hmm. talking more in, in some ways in the Buddhist sense of childlikeness, not childishness. But I'm also talking about it being an action where you're, you are playful. So I started investigating play and I had this, it was kind of like a backburnered hobby because I had a career in education. But I kept reading and reading about play and I wrote that first book, a first draft of that book, Disruptive Play. Well, as you might imagine, you can pick any topic and you can probably find an academic discipline that has an organization around it and they have a journal and they have conferences. So sure enough, I discovered the Association for the Study of Play and it's an organization of a lot of play scholars, but also a lot of people who do pre-K education, you know, early childhood education, advocates for recess and so forth. So really good people doing really good studies and really good scholarship. And so um, I had this whole book written uh, and I went to the conference and I met someone there and she was listening to me talk about the book, Disruptive Play, uh, my first book. And she said, you know, you really should read Lewis Hyde's book from the 1989-1990, Trickster Makes This World. And it's a wonderful book, um, so well done. And it had some real popularity there in the early 1990s. So I read that book and I went, oh my gosh, I've been, this is what I've been uh, after all this time, yet I'd never put it in the sense of the trickster. So I had to go back and rewrite the entire book. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I went back and did it, and I'm, and I'm glad I did, because there's a lot of mileage to be gained from it, given that archetypes are eternal. Um, since tricksters time travel, they're about the future as much as they're about the ancient past, and they're about the right now. So that's that's how I came um, came to it, was was through that that pathway, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. And I like that you specify that it's more about the Buddhist sense of playfulness as opposed to just mere immaturity. 
Right, right. Because I think that's something that ends up getting lost a bit in some of the discussion. Of course, that's what the, that's, that's what the trick, that's what the trickster is. And, you know, the other thought going through my mind was how I had, uh, I had not looked, I had not, I hadn't, I had neither rejected nor accepted. I just hadn't thought about looking at the world through a Jungian lens and seeing today's politics mm-hmm. and today's society and culture as kind of this uh, stew of various archetypes where some get more dominant than others. And, uh, you know, uh, if I had to stand on one foot and tell you what was wrong with the world today, I would say that, you know, we have become infatuated with the warrior archetype. And that's a real problem where we think all things can be solved by defeating our adversaries. And you know, as well as I, you can't kill an archetype. They're all going to be around. It's a matter of proportion. So my crusade, if you will, is that, is that the voice of the trickster get heard a little bit more. I don't want to, I don't want a world run by tricksters, but I want the trickster voice there. Uh, one of the things that really resonated with me, um, reading your book, you know, and talking about the warrior versus the trickster archetypes. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the uh, Marvel movies and how mm-hmm. Loki is in a lot of ways a terrible trickster in those because of his search for power, which is something that's more the warrior archetype. Right. Yeah, as opposed to the trickster who only achieves power through accident. <laughs> right. You and know, doesn't and, hold on to it long. <laughs> right, right. And I I would encourage folks to um get to my website. You just have to know how to spell my name. You spell Shepherd like the occupation. And uh Siegel, you know, when in doubt, use an E, S-I-E-G-E-L, ShepherdSiegel.com, because I, I write at length about uh Loki there and um, I, 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 I tip of the hat to Marvel for, for trying, but, um, us Westerners, we love the good versus evil, um, uh, conflict and tricksters are, it, 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 to use a term, I love the term that Henry Louis Gates Jr. uses in the signifying monkey. They're, they're, they're not evil, but they're not good either. They're morally indeterminate and the trickster tales are about uh, characters who wander through the world morally indeterminate, meaning they just want to have fun and they stumble and their tricks backfire as often as they work, but eventually they reach a point of moral discovery. And so the trickster can teach us about the birth of morality. And though I'm not fond of computer metaphors, it is kind of like rebooting your moral sensibilities to spend some time in 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 the in the world of the trickster um so so that's been something really um influential to me and and also the fact that it, it gives you a refreshed look at morality that is not uh, dependent on doctrine so coming back to marvel so i just write about how it's just too tempting to have the good versus evil and so they get some of it with uh, tom hiddleston wonderful actor with yeah. their version of um of of loki but 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 tricksters don't amass armies you know they they're 
the power is what upsets them and and and, and 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 what they're more led to the mockery of power than the accumulation of power and there's enough marvel stuff where where the loki character is trying to assemble armies and wants world domination um they get other parts right like the unreliable how unreliable yes. they are as, as as allies and so forth but when it comes to the accumulation of power that's when it really it really goes astray um and so the thing i wrote recently was how the real trickster in the marvel cinematic universe is taika waititi <laughs> and, and and what he's done with the thor franchise oh gosh yeah um, I, yeah i, I encourage encourage folks to to look that one up yeah that's i just thought that was brilliant though because i've seen so much discussion of that so uh-huh. i was really happy to see that you addressed it within your book mm-hmm. you know you were talking about um you know in your you know what you just said about the signifying monkey um right. could you explain a little bit about that to the listeners sure i mean it, it it's a, it's a monster of a book and it's also a classic when i say monster it's dense it's difficult um but it is i think it's one of the books that really established henry lewis gates jr as one of the really a great thought leader and and researcher and philosopher and people know him now and I, I love his cameo appearance in uh, the Watchmen series, where he plays the uh, U.S. Secretary of Treasury, and he's he's um, he's he's assigned with uh, uh, distributing reparations to uh, people who've been been wrong. But that's another story. But in the Signifying Monkey, is is really about how. You know, first first of all, let me say every culture on the planet in their folklore traditions has. As far as we know, we, we've never found a culture that doesn't have a trickster god in there somewhere, a god or demigod. And the one, the Yoruba one from West Africa is Eshuelegba, who goes by a number of names, Papa Legba, Eshuelugbara, Eshu Etchu, um, the, the many different spellings, many different names. It's all the same character. Um, who's not necessarily an animal, uh, is a humanoid actually, which is also unusual, but, um, but, but really, um, complex, uh, as far as, you know, really kind of my favorite one to get into. And so the signifying monkey is, um, is kind of Eshu's sidekick, um, and, and also a trickster character in, in his own right. Um, and, uh, Gates readily admits it's mysterious. We don't even really know how the signifying monkey showed up. But somehow in the middle passage, when so many enslaved Africans, you know, made the middle passage uh, to uh, to the New World, not just to the United States, but to South America, to the Caribbean, um, these folktales emerged. He specifically cites uh, Cuba um and and that the signifying monkey then swam the 90 miles from Cuba to Florida and also popped up in the folklore of the delta regions in the southeastern United States and uh and, and all of a sudden there are these tales of the signifying monkey who is like a sidekick uh, to Eshu so that monkey does not even though it's a jungle uh portrayed as a jungle animal is not part of West African folklore per se, but is inextricably connected to that folklore because of how he emerges in, in this country. And, and, and then it becomes this oral tradition 
And I, I prefer the term Afro-Atlantic to Afro-American because if I say Afro-Atlantic, I'm including uh, including Brazil, including mm-hmm. the Caribbean, as well as the so- southern United States. And But the signifying monkey tail, uh, it's just been told over and over and over again, and there's all these variations on it. I finally scored the CD that has um, black folks from, from the South uh, retelling the tale uh, where the monkey uh, tricks uh, tricks the lion into fighting the elephant because the elephant is the real king of the jungle. I'm not going to try to retell it now. I can't do it justice. But in my book, uh, Tricking Power into Performing Acts of Love, I actually uh, have three different versions of, of the signifying monkey tale in there. And it's a fun story. Another way for folks listening to the podcast to access it you know, uh, Eddie Murphy made something of a, a movie about Dolomite that came out uh, a couple of years ago called My Name is Dolomite. And if you look to the actual movie, Rudy Ray Moore is the inventor of the character Dolomite, and he stars in his own movie. And it's one of the very first black exploitation films. As you recall, the New York Times called it the Citizen Kane of Kung Fu pimp movies. Um, and it's 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 really great. And it's it's accessible. It's for sale. It's made something of a comeback, probably thanks to Eddie Murphy's work. And if you get a hold of the original film Dolomite, there's just this tremendous scene where uh, Dolomite uh, reopens. Uh, he gets out of prison and he reopens uh, a nightclub that had been closed down. I, I and and he goes into the nightclub and he just gets on stage and he tells the signified monkey tale. And it's as good as any version of that tale that you'll read. And it's a lot of fun because you can watch it in an early 70s movie. Yeah, it's brilliant, the retellings within your book, too. But to actually hear it recorded and spoken, it gets so much better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the CD, if folks are interested, is called, I think it's called Get Your Ass in the Water and Swim Like Me. And (laughs) And he's got three or four different versions of the signifying monkey tail, and he has other um, African American folk tales that that who knows how far back their origins go. A, a lot of it was lost in, in, in because of the way the tribes were broken up when when uh, enslaved Americans were brought brought over. They you know they consciously broke up tribes, and so a lot was lost. But but the miracle is what survived. Yeah, and what survived what survived is absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. It, I agree. It's it, it's a good it's a it's a good picture of the the tr- the tricks of who the trickster is. Yeah, and you went through um, within your book talking about the various traditions that survived and how Muhammad Ali was an excellent example, you know, of a that sort of trickster spirit existing within a person. Yeah, you know, you know, I'm so glad you brought you brought him up because it was going through my mind, and I, the na- the name is escaping me right now. But he had a sidekick. He had this sidekick who, who I swear to God, personified uh, Bundini. I think was his name, mm-hmm. and he was kind of like the signifying monkey. T- um, and I, I I mean nothing racist in that when I say that appellation because I say it with honor and respect. Um, I, I listen. I'd be one myself if I could. And, 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 and it's, it's that same thing where 
Ali himself is Eshu, is a, is a personification of, of the trickster God who makes this pilgrimage back to Africa. And he's as popular in Africa as the Beatles are in the United States. They, they, they you know, and there was the rumble, rumble in the jungle, you know, where they had, had, had that. And, and the other thing I want to say about Ali is, is first of all, I was absolutely transfixed by, um, uh, Ken Burns four episode uh, uh, documentary on Muhammad Ali, and he, it was absolutely brilliant. And when you when you you know when Ken Burns takes on a, a subject that's in recent enough memory that there's a lot of live footage, mm-hmm. it's 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 just fantastic to have all that and the way that they choose to make their story, and 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 the thing I say about Ali is that. You know, like many, uh, virtually all successful athletes, the warrior force is strong with them. With some professional athletes, they also have heroic qualities. So the hero is strong with them, but it's very rare. I don't know if I can name a sports celebrity like Muhammad Ali, with whom the trickster force was also very strong. And Burns... Burns touches on it, um, doesn't, doesn't quite get it. And, and, and just so you know, I don't love everything. <laughs> Michael Mann, where Will Smith played Ali in the Hollywood movie, absolutely misses the point and portrays Muhammad Ali as a perpetually angry person. Um, and I couldn't imagine somebody getting it more wrong. And uh, uh, Ken Burns sets the record straight in a way. There was a lot of joyfulness and playfulness. You, you know, I talk about how scatology yes. is part of the trickster personality. And when Muhammad Ali was known as Cassius Clay, his nickname was Gaseous Class Cassius. And so it's the markings of the trickster, you know, that show up with him over and over again. Yeah, and I was actually reading recently about the uh, history of rap music and how Muhammad Ali and his, you know, quick-witted quips and the way that he would, uh, you know, playfully jab at his opponents, you know, that sort of use of language was instrumental in the start of rap music. Sure. It's also something that I just you know, hadn't really known before. Oh, rap in particular, right, right. Yeah, yeah. it was just really interesting. You have a little section in your book that's just a bunch of his quotes that I was enjoying so much I had to read them out loud, you know? Yeah, they do read well. Yeah, yeah. They, they read brilliantly. It, you know, you uh, were talking about the making of the trickster um, within your book mm-hmm. and how seldom it is that we see uh, feminine tricksters mm-hmm. or we, we see trickster taking female form occasionally you know with drag with you know that sort of transformation but to have the feminine themselves be a trickster is a more unusual thing yeah and and so so the book um besides uh, a fun little thing on time travel and a couple chapters on slapstick the book has two beating hearts and one of them explores this very thing uh, of, of, of Afro-Atlantic culture and of Eshu. But the other beating heart of the book is the, the, the idea of the female trickster, which um, is, is, is very hard to get a hold of. And there's a few reasons for this. 
Um, one is that most of the world has been patriarchal for so long that, uh, you know, the men get all the good parts, so to speak, you know. Um, and so the folk tales, uh, tend to feature male and, and even, even though tricksters ultimately, there's a really neat, uh, African scholar who, who, you know, who makes the claim correctly, I believe that the tricksters really have no gender mm-hmm. they're, 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 you know, and isn't it ironic, uh, that the old, the, they're the oldest stories known to humanity and that the oldest character known to humanity is a gender fluid character. However, I think in a great deal because of the patriarchy, they're initially presented as male. But whether you're talking about Wakchun Kaga of, of the Winnebago tribe who changes sex whenever, or Bugs Bunny who cross dresses, um, you, you, or, or even, um, uh, is it Loki himself? Uh, who, uh, uh, Loki gets impregnated as in, as a yeah, mare. He needs a horse. Yeah, yeah. he needs a horse, <laughs> and he becomes pregnant with Sleipnir. Right, right. Um, it, it happens in all of them, um, but they're often initially presented as male, and the trickster tales um, have an affinity to the stereotype of the playboy. It is not the same thing as the playboy, but because they don't tend to raise families, but they're highly sexual creatures, you're going to see a lot of the male sexuality, but you don't see the child rearing, which is also part of the reason you don't see the female tricksters, because the child rearing got, you know, the women, the women have had to do more of it historically. So that's part of the problem. Um, the other part is that, you know, a lot of our knowledge about tricksters comes through anthropology. And it wasn't, I think, until like the late 1930s that there was even such a thing as a female anthropologist. So the anthropologists would go out to these indigenous cultures with, uh, you know, and visit them and take their notes and do their studies, perhaps with very good intentions. But either the men were in charge of the storytelling or the male anthropologists were more interested in hearing from the men or, and I think this is important, that even if they wanted to talk to the women in these cultures, they may not, since they couldn't talk woman to woman, since there were no female anthropologists, um, they might, it might have been harder to establish the trust where the women might have shared their tales. And then the final reason why it, it was a, and it was a, it was, um, it was a challenge I took up with relish. I really enjoyed the challenge, but it was not easy to, to dig stuff up. And the other difficulty with, uh, um, drawing a picture, if you will, of the female trickster is that the stories that we do have, the characters frequently are, are, are sketchy. You learn a couple things about them, but you don't learn enough about them to really be able to more conclusively say, oh, and she is a great example of, 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 of the trickster. So when I discovered a book by a woman named Marilyn Jurek called Scheherazade's Sisters, it's, it was an entire book about female tricksters. And it's she who, in that book that educated me really about these difficulties. But through that, and of course, Scheherazade herself, I don't write about Scheherazade, but she's a really pretty good example of how, you know, with the thousand and one Arabian nights managed to stay alive basically through trickery. Um, but also uh, the pirate princess 
of um, and the story occurs in a in a in a few different cultures, but the one uh, that I used was the pirate princess of Yemen uh, was a more drawn out uh, profile. And of course, this leads to the chapter, entire chapter I devoted to Yoko Ono, who I believe is a wonderful modern exemplar of, of a, of a trickster character. But even Yoko, it can be difficult because there was so much bustle around her fame and her marriage to John Lennon and their relationship, which actually, which, uh, as, a, as, as you will read in the book, that her, the, the marriage and the union and their attempts to have an egalitarian uh, uh, relationship between her and John actually gives birth to a more modern edition of the trickster where uh, you can you can be a loner because tricksters are loners, but you can also be in a loving union with another person that's fully respectful and they reached a point of union where they they were very comfortable speaking for each other, for example. Um, so that that was a a, a, a challenging a, a challenge that I just because one of the most exciting things about research is to find out you're wrong about something and yeah. to go, oh, okay, they're not. It's not you know. There's more than this male lens on the trickster and then start digging around and coming up with something better. Because if we come back, um, uh, Hillary, to the, you know, the main purpose, making the world a better place, we have no chance of making the world a better place until there's the full participation uh, of women. And, and, And that also means that our folklore itself, you don't have, you don't have to rewrite it, but you have to, you have to rejigger your perspectives on it if we're going to come. And, and, and if you believe that the archetypes in their essence are transcendent figures, are semi-divine, well, you can't be, you can't be semi-divine and sexist at the same time. So, so we, we have to re-explore this folklore and, and find, separate, separate, let's use the patriarchy. There's, there's other, difficulties in the world, but separate what part of this folktale and this mythology is the patriarchy speaking and what part of it is a is a more transcendent and eternal archetype with a, with, with, with a more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, a more evolved message to share. Yeah, do you think that there's going to be more you talk and more consideration of the female trickster, you know, moving forward, because I think that your book did an excellent job of highlighting that figure, you know, people who could exemplify those characteristics throughout history. Yeah. And with more women, you know, in comedy now, do you think that, you know, there might be more of a discussion of it in the future? I do. I mean, yeah, I hope so because it's the perfect candidate because if, you know, you know, you know, an oversimplification of the trickster is, you know, the 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 guy in the bleachers who says, you know, the the emperor has no clothes. In fact, it was used as a headline to describe our former president uh, just the other day, and I went, "Yep." Yeah. And uh, um, and, and so, I I I do think that that conver- I mean, what better place for that conversation to happen? Because my point being. If if you're if you have the uh, in film and comedy in particular 
where it's been male dominated and the trickster's compulsion is to mock power and to speak truth to power. I think it's inevitable. And, and it, people are talking more and more about comedy these days and writing about comedy and what is comedy and how does it work and what works and what's more upsetting to people and so forth. Yeah, I think uh, that's inevitable. Yeah, I thought that um, the recent animated show that uh, Lisa Hannawalt was doing, uh, Tuca and Birdie, did a really good job of you know kind of sending up people in positions of authority, whether mm-hmm. having the landlord that took over the main character's building be literally just moss taking over everything, growing uh, over everything. You know, say the name of it is a is a series on TV. Uh, Tuca and Birdie. It it was really uh, it was really interesting because you know in the animated form like using that media you can really have very fluid characters you, know, you right. can have them transform you can have you know a lot of scatological humor <laughs> um, okay all right and just you know see what it does but being helmed by a woman a lot of the topics that were discussed you know were different to what I'm used to seeing in animation. Okay. Um, because it was more of a focus on interpersonal relationships, uh, like sexism in the workplace, et cetera. Uh-huh. Um, but it struck me as just, uh, I think that that would be an interesting you know, avenue to look at in terms of how the female trickster might differ from the male trickster. Right. Right. Yeah. And in fact, it, you know, there's a section in the book that says, well, how are female tricksters that we discover them? How are they similar to everything we've said so far? And then how are they different? And that difference hopefully doesn't mean that you have two categories, but it means that we've expanded the concept. Um, and, and that's what was so exciting to me. And as far as relevance for today, you know, I just want to say that I realized that uh, people um, who are coming out in different ways, whether whether it's be because they're gay or because they're trans or or whatever their variation on sexuality is that makes them a minority and perhaps has caused them pain and has caused them some suffering and 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 and, and it's a very serious for them, especially if they've been harassed or they, or their mental health has been affected. I don't diminish any of the seriousness of that. But I also feel that I, I want to see us get to a place where this gender diversity is celebrated. And, and, and for the trickster, I think it's gender's a plaything. Yeah. You know, they play tricks with it. And, you know, I mean, Bugs Bunny, <laughs> in so many of his cartoons, he cross dresses and he kisses Elmer Fudd um, and seduces Elmer Fudd. And it's always funny. And and I just think that the world has to include both. And I think part of my inspiration, once again, when I was growing up, not only in that era of the 60s and the 70s, but it was in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And 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 so I was uh, exposed to the, the, I'll call it the gay revolution that was in the Castro district of San Francisco, where there were parades all the time and drag was really celebrated and it was a party and we all know what AIDS did to that party, but let's yeah. not forget the party. And, 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 and the, um, the, uh, the attraction to having fun. Uh, there was a, an old um, Popeye comic strip 
Oh. Uh, where he first gets sweet pea and he dresses up in a dress and a bonnet, you know, holding sweet oh, really? pea and feeding <laughs> sweet pea and describes himself as having to be both mother and father to sweet pea. And you know, one of the characters is like, well, how can you be a mother to sweet pea? He says, well, I'm amphibious. Amphibious. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that kind of fluidity was absolutely hilarious to me like it's it's really really funny but it also is a really progressive way of looking at things which is kind of that trickster line don't you think some of the most uh, radical cultural thinkers back in the 30s 40s and 50s and and onward even were were the cartoonists the people doing the definitely Yeah, 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 definitely. You talk about um, Bugs Bunny a fair bit in both of your books. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you talk about his history first in Disruptive Play right. and how it was a whole group of people who first uh, came up with the character. And this and this is what got me locked into a Jungian perspective. Um, so, uh, first of all, I, I do think Bugs Bunny is the great American trickster. Uh, and I, I, I will, it, my, my only uh, disclaimer before I delve into this is that Bugs Bunny is portrayed by the late 70s on, I, I think maybe they lost their grip on on, on, on the, the, the trickster archetype that informs Bugs Bunny. But let me share the more interesting story of how I came to it. So I, I already told you about how I met this person at the conference and she turned me on to the Lewis Hyde book. And through the Lewis Hyde book, Trickster Makes This World, um, I, it led me in my research to this other spectacular book that came out about 1955, 56, by um, an anthropologist. Oh, my God, his name just escaped me. Paul Radin. His name oh, is Paul yes. Radin, and it's called The Trickster. And I'm reading it, and, and, it, and uh, the large portion of the book retells the tales of Wachumkaga, and Wachumkaga is the oldest story known to humanity and is a trickster uh, story. And Wachumkaga is of the Winnebago tribe. And, and so I'm reading these episodes, the, the, these trickster tales, and there you get the gender shifting and you get uh, the uh, scatology and you get the tricks that backfire. Um, you, 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 you know, this is, this is, this is a very fully fleshed out portrait of the trickster. But as I'm reading these stories, I'm going, wow, most of these little episodes could be told in about seven, eight, nine minutes. And, and like by the time I've read the 20th, 30th, one of these tales, I'm going, oh my God, it's Bugs Bunny. <laughs> the, 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 uh, the connection is, is, is incredible. And, and so that book came out in the mid fifties. Now, Bugs Bunny, uh, cartoon started out in 1938 or 39. Uh, his first Academy Award nomination came in 1940. I think it was a wild hair. And, um, and so I'm thinking to myself, okay, somehow this, like, as you, as you said, Hillary, you know, the, the, it was, it was a collective effort, not just Mel Blanc on voice and Carl Stalling writing these amazing music, but the writers. And then there was like three or four different directors, Tex Avery, a guy named Clampett, um, 
Max Fleischer, I think, you know, um, about who are the directors. But there was a writer's group and a writer's room, like for any comedy series. And they had this strong sense, even if they couldn't express it, that they knew what worked with Bug, what was Bugs-E-ish and what wasn't. And so they, I, I became convinced that they were really channeling this archetype because, and I don't want to presume, but I don't think these, these cartoon story writers were reading anthropological studies. Paul Raines did not even come out for another 15 years. But here they are channeling this character that in many ways is identical to the trickster god, the trickster demigod, if you will, of the of the Winnebago tribe, Wachankaga. And that was, uh, that was the epiphany that really became the guiding light for everything that I wrote from that point forward. I think that it's that universal you know, archetype that is part of the longevity of you know Bugs Bunny and like Coyote and Road and Roadrunner too. Right, right. Because it's it's funny. You know, it's funny and it resonates. Right. And of course, let's let's just look at one of the you know. When I, I really hope folks will pick up my book, and then in an early chapter in Tricking Power, uh, talks about the ten attributes of the of the trickster, and to talk about one of them is the tricksters. Nobody likes being humiliated. I'm not saying they like it, but the trickster is willing to take the risk that the trick will backfire, or that that he or she will suffer some form of humiliation at some point. And the, the the beauty of the Bugs Bunny cartoons is that every now and then his tricks backfire and he has to suffer that humiliation and it becomes part of the humor. And so when people ask me, for example, if, you know, is Donald Trump a trickster? Is the force strong with him? And I say, you know, he's, he, he's the person who's a very averse. He does not willing to accept any risk of humiliation. And a true trickster, for the sake of the party, for the sake of having fun, for the sake of playing a trick that might backfire, they're willing to accept that risk. Now, it, but it's not every time. Sometimes the tricks work, sometimes they don't. And so um, I do like the Coyote and Roadrunner one. And Coyote, of course, historically is, is a trickster figure. And I believe throughout North America, it's not just one tribe. It's in many tribes. I know you spent a lot of time with Coyote. and yeah. um, um, But in the cartoons... He always loses. None of his tricks ever, ever yeah, work. There was actually a list of nine rules that nine guided. Um, did you see the list of nine rules that guide every one of the Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons? Oh, no, I've never seen that. Um, I th- like, I want to say it was Tex Avery, but it was you know, one of the people involved had a list of rules. And they were kind of playing in my head while I was reading your books. Oh. Because there are rules such as... Uh, you know, the roadrunner cannot harm the coyote except by going beep, beep. No outside <laughs> force can harm the coyote. Only his own ineptitude or the failure of the Acme products. <laughs> the coyote could stop anytime if he were not a fanatic. <laughs> oh, I love this. Yeah, this is- so it, it goes on and it's like um, the coyote is always more humiliated than harmed by his failures. Right. You know, so it. Right. There's that gentleness, you know, to it where, mm-hmm. you know, if the injuries were permanent, if, you know, if, if we see it, if we focused on it too much, it would be tragedy. 
but because you know he's just more humiliated than anything else it's fine right. and he continues right. on and then it goes on yeah. yeah yeah and and i thought that was just a really interesting bit because it's also the thing you know if he catches the roadrunner what happens you know it's not about the what happens when he catches it like I think he catches it in one of the cartoons and just holds up the sign that says, well, what now? What now? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, you can you can just see these uh, writers having fun. You know, but listening to you uh, talk about this, it, it, I, um, I'm thinking to myself, well, the coyote in those cartoons is in and of himself, not the trickster. But if you combine the coyote and the roadrunner, you get a trickster consciousness that, that that they each play their role as, as as each one of them is a different part of a person's emotional, spiritual, archetypal personality profile. And to me, that's an epiphany because the, the point I really want to make to your listeners is that, you know, I talk about characters, some fictional, some non-fictional, whether it's Yoko Ono or Muhammad Ali or Bugs Bunny um, or, or, or the signifying monkey or Eshu in the book, because that's how we communicate these days as we tell stories. But I'm not, it's not like I want, I want my readers to recognize it when we see people or fictional characters who, who personify trickster. But what I'm really after is trickster consciousness. You know, that it's a part of everybody and the force is stronger with some than others. But that in, 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 to come back to an earlier point that when we are looking at the public commons, you know, I, 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 you have to have the warrior. The warrior comes in really handy. I just want the warrior to sit down and shut up for a while and let the mother speak and let the heroes speak and let the tricksters speak, you know. And, and it doesn't have to be embodied in a particular person, but it has to be part of all of us. Because Americans, we know the warrior. We know the warrior. We watch it on TV every Sunday during the football season. You know, we, 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 we love and respect our veterans, and I do too. Um, and we have the most powerful military in the history of the world. And the Pentagon is, in fact, the center of, 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 of warriorness, you know, okay, I get it, but let's make room for more in our public dialogue. One of the things I thought was uh, really interesting, you know, because although the trickster is not seeking a position of power, right. um, you made a great point in your book, you're talking about how the trickster, you know, spirit, that consciousness can yeah. still achieve a great level of, um, not exactly success, but, you know, it is, you know, success. It is, uh, aptitude, you know, mastery, um, through the force of Sun Ra, oh, who right. had, you know, with his orchestra, you know, one of the best bands in the world. Right. Um, so, you know, just because a person's a trickster doesn't mean that they can't, you know, accomplish some pretty great things. Well, I'm, oh, that's wonderful that you brought Sun Ra up because I don't see Sun Ra himself. <laughs> Whoever thought we would be connecting Sun Ra to uh, the uh, Roadrunner and the Coyote. <laughs> but, but in and of himself, he's not a trickster, but he created a space where trickster consciousness could exist. 
in really a more an ineffable uh, a form. Uh, it wasn't in a necessarily in a particular musician, but more in the space that he created, and a more you know, and he's just one of the jazz greats. And another more recent example that I write about is Michaela Coel in um, "I May Destroy You," the HBO series. Is mm-hmm. she her character is not a trickster, but she wrote that whole thing. She directed it. She starred in it, and she creates a world um, in that limited HBO series that I believe is a, a real clue. And it's dangerous. It's it's got a little bit of chaos. Trickster is all about you know a little bit of chaos. Um, uh, and and it's a chaotic world that that TV series describes, um, and where anything can happen. But the thing I want to make sure your listeners hear, you know, is that this is kind of an essential step towards making the world a better place. Towards a very high moral good, but you cannot get to a better world with a, a, a strict moral doctrine. Mm-hmm. You have to have some some psychic freedom. You have to let the trickster speak. You have to. The beauty of the trickster is that, as I said earlier, they just they go through an. Uh, eventually they come to an episode of moral discovery and we have we as a we as a human race have to reach that moment of moral discovery we can't and we can't win it in a war you can't enforce it through a religious or a political doctrine it has to be a shared discovery and once again so i'm not talking about trickster heroes i'm talking about a consciousness where we we stumble into moral discovery collectively. Uh, how might you suggest the listeners tap more into that extra <sighs> consciousness within themselves? Ah, boy. <laughs> well, <laughs> get my books and read them. And I, I hope they'll have an effect, uh, have that effect that it, people will start to recognize it more. Uh, that when people are discussing things, and look, I'm as guilty of it as anyone, you know, there's a part of me that's very sure about what I think is right and what I think is wrong, what I think is good, what I think is evil, but that when that, that they might in, engage in conversations, especially with the, our divisions, you know, uh, the, our political divisions in the country right now, that in their conversations, they might be willing to relinquish just for a moment. You can have it back. You can have your moral doctrine back whenever you want it. But let go of it for a little while and see where the conversation leads. Um, and um, and I just, you know, for the folks who were on my mailing list, I just today uh, put something out about utopia that I think that Trickster opened, lifts the veil and allows us to start talking about what a more perfect world would would look like. And, and it, it's... Um, I don't know if we have time today, but but what you'll see, especially in the Tricking Power book, is the connections between the trickster and the I, and the not necessarily a fleshed out concept of a utopia because that that could fall into doctrine very easily, but more to opening the door to a free ranging conversation about what a more perfect world would look like. And you know, the thing that I sent out by email today was. I talked about folks who are not tricksters at all, but they're very serious 
heroes, whether it was Bill McKibben and his work on the environment or Greta Thunberg and her work on the environment um, and, and philosophers like, like Cornell West and political leaders like Stacey Abrams, um, that they have a long-term vision. There's this new guy on the scene, William McCaskill from Scotland. Um, but then there are trickster types like uh, the Yes Men um, and Banksy and, and so forth, whom I write up about, and I think they open the door and they clear the threshold so that these other folks who have have the substantial ideas of what we can do to make a more peaceful world, a uh, happier world, uh, a, a world that solves some of our problems. Um, since the tricksters just want to have fun, you know, they can't, they know that they'll never really have full-bodied fun until sexism and racism and all the other isms of hate are are that we've gotten past them until we've 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 uh uh you know stopped the planet from burning up um and we've stopped killing each other um they know that and and they encourage us to look beyond because what happens when you do solve those problems what kind of world are you creating everybody's well fed and we're not diseased and we're living healthy lives and we're loving each other and we're not sectarian in any ways Oh, we're going to have fun. <laughs> Wait, I want, and before we close, I want you and I in unison to say, because you knew the exact words, and I think I've got it, but, you know, we have our spiritual leaders, not just Bill, but Bill and Ted. Yes. <laughs> and what they say is, be excellent to each other. And party on. Party on. <laughs> so I, we should say that in unison before we sign off today. Ah, but first I want to ask, are you working on anything new? Well, um, yes and no. I, 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 I never intended to even write a second book. Um, so what happened is I was touring behind Disruptive Play, and I got really good feedback from the audience. Where are the women? Mm-hmm. Where are the people of color? And I don't apologize for the fact that, once again, in the era where I grew up, and the things I was exposed to growing up in the 60s and 70s, it was white males I was exposed to. Wonderful white males. Marcel Duchamp, Alfred Jarry, Abby Hoffman, Andy Kaufman. Uh, the Marx but, Brothers. <laughs> then the Marx Brothers. Thank you. Yeah, we didn't even get to talk about them. But, and, and, but, and so the books are real good companions to each other. Um, and I went, because after touring and getting this feedback from my audiences, I went, hey, I really do. I need to, I need to, I need to flesh this out. I need to address it. I need to write about the feminine. It turned into an amazing research challenge. And then I got into the signifying monkey and the, the Afro Atlantic and, <laughs> and of course, slapstick and, and Bill and Ted. And, um, um, so I, I, I think there's a third one out there waiting, but I just kind of want to party. <laughs> That's perfectly fine because you do have a wonderful website, um, Thank you. which again, you know, people can find at shepherdseagull.com right. uh, with a newsletter, with a blog. Um, you can get the books there. And I, I read both of the books. I think they're absolutely wonderful. And I think that everybody should read them. Thank but you. I I will definitely be watching and waiting to see whether or not a third book comes. 
Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so shall we say it together? Yeah, we have to. We have to. Be excellent, excellent to, to each, each other. other. And party, and party on. on. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you also. Thanks to Hilary and Dr. Shepard Siegel. Tricking Power is published by Morgan James, and you can find Dr. Siegel online at shepherdsegel.com. Don't forget that you can sign up to our Patreon for as little as £1 a month and support the podcast and the work of the Folklore Library and Archive, a non-profit organisation dedicated to collecting and preserving folklore materials for the future. Visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast where you'll also be able to access all of the back catalogue of Patreon-exclusive content if you sign up. You can visit the Folklore Library and Archive online at folklorelibrary.com, where you can browse the library catalogue, access all of the free digital resources, and more. Thanks for listening. See you next time.